As we get into God's word, I have one thing I want to say to you, just one thing. Happy Easter, I guess. Let's rephrase that. Happy Easter. Jesus is alive and well, friends. He has risen from the grave. He has conquered death. He's victorious over sin and the grave and evil. He wins. Therefore, we win. Jesus is alive. Yes. Yes. That's more like it. Just saying. And we're going to carve on in God's word this morning, in John chapter 20, verse 1. Grab your Bible and turn there now. John chapter 20, verse 1. And while you are finding that, here's just a little fun factoid for you. This might not make a huge difference to your life, but I'm going to tell you anyway. As you know, we've been in the gospel of John for a long time. This is the 44th week in this series. We're actually very close to being done. And when we planned this series out, like a year and a half ago, we planned it on purpose that we would end up in John chapter 20 on Easter Sunday, April the 9th, 2023, which is today, which is cool because if we had had like one snowstorm or anything, we'd have been toast. We might have had to ask to get Easter moved a week or something, but we didn't have to do that. So that's pretty cool. Now... If you've missed the last few weeks, what we've discussed, we've been just carving our way through the Easter narrative in the Gospel of John. We've seen Jesus. He's been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been taken away before the Jewish leaders and questioned and interrogated. He's been led from there to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, because they're trying to get him executed. Jesus is sentenced to death by Pilate. And like we talked about on Friday, out in the parking lot where we nearly blew away, Jesus was crucified. He died on a cross in our place to pay for our sins. That is where we pick up the narrative in John chapter 20. So let's just read the first nine verses here of this as we get started. It says this, now on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Somebody say, he gone. Thank you. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, as we've seen, that's referring to John who wrote this book, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. I don't know who they is, by the way, but they, somebody came along and stole him, basically. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He did his stretches beforehand, eh? And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. I just laughed. Jesus left the place better than he found it. Just saying, okay? Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture. Here it is right here that he must rise from the dead. That's the kicker. That's everything. So what you need to know 
I don't know what you've come in here, what kind of background you have, what kind of things you believe or don't believe. I just need you to know today that as a church, we believe, like we literally, actually, honestly, unapologetically believe Jesus really died and really rose. And we will not apologize for feeling and thinking that way. That is the conviction that we stand on. You say, are you crazy? And I say, maybe, but not for this reason. Jesus really died and really rose. We believe that in the word of God. And it matters, listen, both of those things matter greatly. It matters immensely to us that Jesus died. And he didn't just die any old way. He died on that cross sacrificially for our sin. We believe that he died, and here in this text, it is happening in and around a tomb. Tombs typically are for dead people, just saying. It talks about the cloth and the face cloth. Those are not just regular old cloths. Those are burial clothes. Do you know who burial clothes are traditionally for? Dead people, okay? Jesus had died on the Friday afternoon. This is now Sunday morning. So this is not like, oh, his heart maybe stopped for five minutes and we misdiagnosed him. It's like he's been dead for a day and a half. He's dead, dead, really dead. And he was buried and there were witnesses. He was put in this tomb and a stone was rolled in front of it. He's dead. And that matters greatly to us, like I say, because if Jesus had not died in that way, there'd be no sacrifice for our sin. You see, we were made by God and for God. We were made, literally the, the DNA of your life, you were designed to function in a relationship with God, to be close to God, to walk with God. That's literally the, the, the point and the essence of this whole life. But we have sinned, the Bible says, we have fallen short of God's glory. All of us in the house, we've all done it. The line starts right here and we're all in it. And our sin separates us from God. This gulf is created. This holy and perfect God who we were created by is here, but we can't just be in his presence because of our sin, because where sin is, God cannot be, and where God is, sin cannot be, and all that, right? So there's this gulf that we've created by our sin, but Jesus in his death died to pay for that sin so that gulf could be crossed. You see, you and I cannot cross it ourselves. I don't know how good you are at the long jump, but you're not that good at it. Not one of us can do enough, earn our way back, say the right things, be religious enough, etc., to earn God's favor because we've all sinned, period, exclamation mark. But Jesus, in his death, see, the, the Bible also says the wages of sin is death. You sin, you owe a price for that. You owe a debt for that, and it's death. It's literally your life. You, die, you sin, you die. That's how it works, both physically and spiritually. So not only do you go through this life cut off from a, rela a relationship with God like you were supposed to be in all along, you pay for it with your life. Hell is a real place. We believe that too, just saying. We're also not crazy for that reason. There might be a long list of other reasons, but it ain't that. But Jesus, in his death, see, he came not to make a political statement, not to get famous, not to uh, get his 15 seconds in the limelight. Jesus came as our sacrifice and our substitute. Something must die for sin. God's wrath and justice must be poured out on sin, every sin. And Jesus, because he was without sin, when he died on the cross, he was an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. Not his own, by the way. He didn't die for his own sin, he had none. Who did he, whose did he die for? 
ours. We didn't deserve that, just saying. It's not because we're so great and we've done something so, no, it's because God so loved the world. God loves you. That is why Jesus died for you, to pay for all of your mess, all of your garbage, free of charge. It's not like you can be saved if you put something in the collection plate. No, it's through faith in him. And it's a free gift of grace. You say, that's not fair. And I say, now you're getting it. It's totally not fair what he went through for us, but that's the truth of the gospel. Jesus died for you. Now, equally important though is the fact that he rose. That's what it says in verse nine. He rose from the dead. He was actually dead. He actually woke up. He actually folded up his cloths and he actually left and the stone had been rolled away. We actually believe that. And that matters greatly because if Jesus just dies but doesn't rise, then sin and evil have the final word. There, we, we put him down. We've silenced him. And, and the last word on that is, is of evil. But since Jesus has risen, he has the final word. He has the final say. He is victorious. He is greater. That is where our hope is as Christians. It's not just that Jesus died. It's that he rose to secure victory, not only for himself, but for us. That is where it's found, in the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a great promise in the scriptures. I think we said it already this morning. Jesus said, as I live, so you will also live, if you believe. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will live, because he lives, which is awesome. And later in our text in John 20, Jesus is going to say about ascending to the Father. He ascends. That's, that's literally where he is right now, by the way. He's alive and well still. This happened 2,000 years ago, and he's still alive and well. Pretty stinking awesome, just saying. Again, we fully believe that up in here. Jesus ascended to the Father after his resurrection. He is there now ruling and reigning. He is sitting on a throne. He is building his kingdom. He is building his church. One day he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. But right now, he is enthroned in glory and he is making an invitation to each one of us. An invitation to die to ourselves, to put our faith in him, to acknowledge I'm a sinner, but I need to be saved and only Jesus can save me. It's to acknowledge that by his death, your sins were paid for. In his resurrection, your hope was secured. It's to repent of your sin and say, Lord, I'm tired of doing things my way. I'm laying that down and I wanna come after you, Jesus. I want you to be my Lord and my savior and my king. And it's to surrender to him. And the Bible says when you do that, when you respond in faith to what Jesus has done for you, you are saved, you are made new, you are born again, you enter into a relationship with God, you become a child of God, you can start walking with God, which guess what? That's the place you were supposed to occupy all along. So literally in Jesus Christ, you can now live according to your life's purpose, which is to be close to him. And by the way, the little cherry on top is Jesus is coming back and if you belong to him you're going to go and be with him forever in a place where all is made new all is well no more pain and we're with Jesus forever that's the gospel story and yes we fully believe that thank you very much yes thank you Jesus so that that in a nutshell is the Easter story but don't worry we got lots more to read haha -ha. what I want to do 
I got five things that I want to share with you today, and I'm going to do something which is perhaps unwise. I'm going to tell you what you need. I'm going to tell you how you feel. If you're married, you'll know that that's generally a stupid idea, okay? I've never done that, but I've heard tell of other people doing it that they will speak for their spouse. Well, you're mad. Usually it's, don't tell me that I'm mad. You don't say that. I'm sort of going to do that for you today. But it's because I believe that strongly in what we're going to see in God's word. What I'm going to tell you in, 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 in a nutshell is this. Jesus is what you're looking for. I don't know what you came in here looking for in your life today. I don't know what you think your needs are. I don't know what you're chasing after. I, I, I know none of that. And I don't need to. Because I am that sure of who Jesus is. I am that sure that he, he is that wonderful. He is that beautiful. He is that relevant to our lives today that ultimately whatever it is you're after, it's ultimately Jesus and it's ultimately found in him. So we're gonna see that. I got five things to share with you. First one is this. Jesus is the treasure you're looking for. Somebody say treasure. treasure. You said that with authority, treasure. Let's read just quickly. Let's read from verse 10 to verse 18. After this, they saw Jesus, the tomb, all this. It says, then the disciples went back to their homes. They said, we've seen enough, we're out of here. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And there she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. By the way, we believe in angels too. Yep, there's just a little lot in here. Anyway, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw who? Jesus, standing. But she did not know that it was him. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I love this. Supposing him to be the gardener. I don't know. You've probably done stuff like that before. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. In other words, if you stole him, look, I'm not even going to call the cops on you. Just tell me where he is and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. There it is. But, to, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. You say, I don't know what that has to do with treasure. Well, allow me to explain. You guys know the concept of treasure. Treasure is something in your life that you value very greatly. Anything can be a treasure. It's whatever you seek after super hard. It's whatever you value so greatly that you spend your life pursuing it, chasing after it, making sacrifices in order to get it. And when you get it, you rejoice when you find it. That is a treasure. And life, human life, I don't care who you are, human life really is a life of seeking treasure. Like we're kind of hardwired to want things, we all do, and we're inclined and hardwired to 
go after those things. Well, I have this sense or this longing in me and I want that thing and so I'm going to do what I can to get that thing. That's the concept of treasure. And here's what I will tell you. Again, I'm gonna speak for you. Ultimately, when we come into patterns of longing in our life, not, not really like I want a sandwich for lunch, but I'm talking about the bigger things, the deeper things, that big thing that you've been chasing after maybe for years in your life. Ultimately, that longing and that ache inside, it's ultimately a longing for God, right? You might think it's, it's money or it's possessions or it's power and status. It's actually not. It actually runs deeper than that. The cry of your heart is actually crying out for God. There's a great verse in the scriptures that says this, God has placed eternity in the human heart. That's not talking just about the passage of time, right? That's talking about a quality of life or or, or an essence of life, the substance of life. God has placed that in you, that in your heart of hearts, despite all the other noise and distractions in the world, deep down, your soul actually thirsts and longs for God. You say, I've never felt that before. Well, guess what? It's still in there because that's the way you were made. And Jesus comes along and he picks up on this. In John 17, three, he says, this is eternal life. Remember God put eternity in the human heart? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know God. They know Jesus. That word know, that's relational. That we not know, just know about him, but that we know him personally and we're close to him and we're walking with him. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that he is the greatest treasure in the world far greater than any other treasure you can chase after. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. But here's the thing. Like any treasure, you gotta seek it. You gotta seek him. Many people don't. Many people are just totally content without him. And I'm fine and I'm just living my life, living my truth, no problem. Some people dabble in seeking Jesus Oh, I'm gonna insult somebody when I say this. It's not supposed to sound this bad. Some people like come to church on Christmas and Easter. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> I'm not making fun, honestly. And they go, okay, there, there, I did it. Cool, awesome, got my God fixed, check. And then it's months later and whatever. And that's mostly the pursuit. Many people see a little bit of Jesus, maybe even believe in Jesus, but they quickly grow content with Jesus. That actually happened to the disciples in this text. You remember, we read earlier, they were running for the tomb. Peter and John were running, just going for it. And after they look in and they see Jesus isn't here and they kind of peruse around for a minute, verse 10 in our text says, then they went back to their homes. They said, okay, that's, that's enough. That's fine. There's a verse in the book of Jeremiah that says this. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, this is God speaking. He says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That's pursuit. That's pursuing a treasure. He's not just talking about you would find him initially at your moment of salvation. That's talking for us as Christians too, people who already know Jesus. If you continue to seek him with all your heart, you will find him. And if he really is the greatest treasure, that should get us a little bit excited. If we seek after the Lord Jesus, we're gonna find him and we're gonna find what it is to truly live because he's the greatest treasure. Is this making sense? Here's Mary in this text. 
I, I love Mary Magdalene in this text. The disciples, they decide they've seen enough and they leave, but it says Mary stayed. She lingered. She stopped for a moment and actually considered. And she actually looked into the tomb. She put a little bit of work into it, right? And when she did this, she was greatly rewarded for it. She looked in, she said, she saw these two angels sitting in there and they're talking to her. These are heavenly beings. Heaven is touching earth and she's experiencing it. And then she turns around and Jesus himself is there and he speaks to her. And it doesn't say it explicitly here, but Jesus says, do not cling to me. That implies that she started to cling to him and he said, don't do that yet. But my point is, she falls at his feet in worship. She has found something so valuable, so wonderful, so worth the pursuit. She just lays herself down at Jesus' feet. That same thing can happen to us, by the way. If we would stop and get off the hamster wheel for two seconds in our lives, and rather than just being locked into the routine and I'm busy and I got things to do and here's my responsibilities and my obligations and my routine, if we would stop and take a breath and seek the Lord, maybe pray, start to worship, put some music on, whatever. If you would seek the Lord, we already read it, you will find him if you will seek him with your whole heart. We would see him. We would know him deeper. We would see heavenly things, heaven touching earth, God moving. But we gotta seek him because he is a treasure. And if we're on autopilot though, I think we've all been there. If we're on autopilot, don't expect much to change. Wow, why don't I feel very close to God right now? It's not all about your feelings. But why does it seem like God is distant? Well, have you pursued him lately? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, the word says. If you would stop just for a moment, I think you would probably realize that treasure that you're chasing after, but something other than Jesus, probably deep down, if you really searched in your soul, you would find it actually isn't that satisfying. Maybe it's money, maybe it's sex, maybe it's power, maybe it's something else, I don't know. But those things were never meant to satisfy your soul. But guess what? Jesus is and Jesus does and Jesus can. And if you would seek after him, he would light you up in the best way possible. Jesus is the treasure you're looking for. I'm telling you how you feel this morning. Let's move on, let's do the next one here. Jesus is the peace you are looking for. Somebody say peace. Nobody even gave me the peace sign. That was disappointing. Thank you. Peace. Peace is something that is desperately lacking in this world. Peace is not just the absence of conflict in your life. It's the presence of blessing. It's the presence of something good. It's not just that the storm isn't raging. It's that there's an act of calm there. That's what peace is. And here in verse 19 of our text, it says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear, here's that word fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. His hands literally a couple of days earlier had been nailed through. His spear, his side had been thrust into with a spear and he showed them these wounds then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So let's just 
Let's just track through that. It says that they were meeting and the doors where they were were locked for fear of the Jews. Why were they afraid of the Jews? Well, the Jews hated Jesus, who was their leader. Now his body was missing. Who are they probably thinking that the Jewish leaders are going to blame that on? They're going to think, we did it. So they've locked the doors. They're afraid. And their fear is so bad, they don't even want to go outside. They don't even want to be seen out in the world. They don't even want to step out because of what might happen to them. By the way, a little freebie for you. That's what fear is. It always deals in the what if. It's usually not even grounded in reality. You're worrying and anxious over something that literally might not even happen. So let's stop taking ourselves so seriously in that, okay? Just saying, that was a freebie. You're welcome. The doors are locked. It says that Jesus stood among them, okay? Jesus did not have a key to that place. He just was there. It was a miracle. Yes, we also believe in miracles. You're learning a lot about us this morning if you're new here, okay? Jesus stood among them. They are in this place, which is kind of like a stronghold, and they're in there because of fear, this stronghold of fear that exists. Jesus shows up in the middle of it. And he, the, the walls that they have built literally can't keep him out. You know what that means? Jesus is greater than your fear. He is greater and stronger. And when he comes in, he says, peace be with you. What he's clearly doing is saying that he is the reason for their peace, right? It's not, oh, the economy will level out and, and, and that relationship will work out and, and I'll have money in my account. It's not anything to do with that. It's his presence is their peace. And then it says, he showed them his hands and his side. In other words, when Jesus showed up on the scene and he said, I'm your peace, he reminded them why he's their peace. He showed them and reminded them what he did for them, dying on the cross. It says, then they were glad when they saw the Lord. Their hearts were lifted when they saw the Lord. So here, here's the equation here. Remember I said we're not math people, not counting people, but here's a little formula. These guys were fearful then there was a revelation of Jesus. He showed up in the midst of it and then their hearts were lifted as they remembered what he did for them. I wonder, could that apply for us today? Could that have any relevance in our lives today? Maybe like a little bit or a lot, maybe a ton. If you're fearful this morning, Jesus wants to reveal himself in your fear and he wants to lift and encourage your heart in that by reminding you you. He died for you. And not only that, he rose for you. So when you really start to think about it, when you really set your mind onto the Lord in relation to your fear, you're going to realize, wow, that thing I'm fearful over, am I really suggesting that that thing is greater than Jesus, the one who literally gave his life and then conquered the grave? Am I really saying that this earthly temporal thing I'm worried about is more powerful than he is? doesn't make sense. If you are fearful, I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't know what you're anxious over. I don't know what's keeping you up at night. But Jesus wants to reveal himself to you there. That is his heart for you. He's not pounding you over the head saying, you moron, why are you afraid? He's saying, look to me, trust in me because I am your peace. He is our peace. He is the peace that you are looking for. And at the revelation of Jesus, that is where peace is introduced. Third thing is this. 
Jesus is the proof you are looking for. I want to speak to the non-Christians in the room. This will not be the deepest dive you'll have ever heard on this stuff, but let's just kind of vamp on it for a minute. Go to verse 24 of our text. It says this, now Thomas, one of the 12 disciples called the twin, was not with them when Jesus had come into the locked room there, what we just read. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, nah, nah. That's in there somewhere in the translation, nah. He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's a realist, right? He's, he's a science guy. Show me the proof, show me the evidence, and then I might believe. But until then, uh-uh. Then it says this, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, in other words, these guys had forgotten about the fear thing that they were taught a week ago. That's the human experience. Sometimes we learn and then we kind of fall back. Anyway, that's another story for another day. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, this will sound familiar, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, he singles Thomas out and he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas is like many of us. We approach the whole God thing through the natural mind. Yep, show me the evidence, show me the proof, show me the biology, show me the physics, show me how that all works, and then I might believe. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that is an incomplete picture because if we only consider God through our natural mind, we're forgetting the fact that God is also the God of the supernatural. And that's a huge piece of the equation that you're missing. God, this is something else we believe, God literally exists outside of the space and time limitations that we have, right? We're kind of bound by a calendar and it's this time of day and it's this era of history. God is over and above all that. Like our little brains can't comprehend that, but that is the plane that God exists on. He's the God of the supernatural. So it shouldn't be the least bit surprising that if he exists there and like that, he can do things that are greater than what we can explain in our natural minds sometimes. The Bible says that God is able to do more than we think or ask or even imagine. He's the God of the supernatural. And here Thomas is doubting. And Jesus appears. And he says he showed him his hands and his feet and his side. That's his heart for Thomas. Even though Thomas doesn't believe, Jesus wants to reveal himself to him. If you don't believe this morning, Jesus wants to reveal himself to you as well. And again, I will say, there's nothing wrong with pursuing the truth and pursuing the facts. Some of you guys are really science minded and that's cool, and you've read textbooks, and, and there's lots of numbers and details and timelines and all that, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, but at some point in this conversation about God, the, the narrative has to swing around to include the aspect of faith, too. It needs to involve faith. That's why Jesus kept saying to Thomas, believe. I want you to believe. Do you believe now? Don't disbelieve, but believe. It's in there all the time. It's a matter of faith. At some point, when it comes to God, listen, you need to come to grips with the fact that maybe you don't know it all and don't understand it all. 
And you need to be okay with that. It's not a blind faith though. It's not just, oh, forget all your logic and all your reason and just leave it behind and trust in Jesus. No, it's not a blind faith. There is evidence if you would look for it, if you would humble your heart and consider that it might possibly be true. For instance, I don't know, his resurrection. That's a pretty decent piece of evidence. The Bible says, like we read, it was witnessed that he was killed and crucified. It was witnessed that he was put in a tomb with a big rock in front of it that people couldn't move easily. It was witnessed that he rose again. People, literally, it says there were upwards of 500 people that saw him after he rose from the dead. This isn't like, I saw him, take my word for it. A whole bunch of people saw him. That's evidence. But there's more than that too. There's like history and archaeology and all these aspects of science that point to the truth of the scriptures and point to the truth of who Jesus is. Also, don't forget, there's this little organization called the church, that exists 2,000 years later. It's like, you mean to tell me that this ragtag group of people that started in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, you mean to tell me that somehow with no influence, no power, no formal training, no education, they started this movement that is still going on 2,000 years later? Like, come on now. The fact that there's even still a church anywhere is proof of Jesus being who he says that he is. There's also the fact that all through the last 2,000 years, there have been people literally murdered and martyred for their faith. If this was all a bunch of hoo-ha, why would like countless thousands of people have allowed themselves to be killed for the sake of Jesus Christ? That should be something that gets your attention. Also, bringing it right into our day and in our lives, there are people, even in this room, whose lives have been drastically changed by no other explanation than Jesus showed up in my life and changed me and did something to me. There's literally a full room of people right here that can testify to that as well. This is all proof that this is true. So in your search, listen, don't be prideful and puffed up and say, I'll never believe this is all stupid. Christians are idiots. Do you mean to tell me that you've never encountered something in your life that you can't explain? You mean to tell me that everything you've seen, you've understood, and you could rationalize it away by some theory and some formula? You mean to tell me you've never seen or come into anything in your life that couldn't possibly have been a coincidence? I don't think so. If that's your stance, I love you, but I gotta tell you, you haven't seen it all. You haven't. Jesus, Jesus is the key to understanding it all. If you are considering what's Christianity about, what's this God stuff about, start with Jesus, look to Jesus, study Jesus. He is the key to the whole thing. He ultimately, if you're holding out, waiting for God to throw a thunderbolt down to convince you, Jesus is the proof you're looking for. Start with him. Next, two more. You guys are doing great. Number four is this. Jesus is the cause you're looking for. Somebody say cause. So let me, let me explain this, what I mean by this. We've established that Part of our human experience is this longing in our lives. God has put eternity in the human heart. Part of that longing is a longing for your life to count for something. Don't tell me that isn't true about your life. Oh, do you want your life to count for something or not? No, I don't think so. Like, come on now. You want your life deep down to have an impact. 
You want to leave a legacy. You want to spend your days working on and working towards something that actually is going to make a difference. I know you do. And there's nothing wrong with that inherently. We can take that and make it a bad thing. We can say, my cause, the thing I want to work toward is getting super rich or getting lots of power or any number of ungodly things. But also, we can spin this around to be used in a godly way. So let's read verse 21 to 23. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and it says, he says to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So we're talking to the Christians in the room now. It says this. By the way, the next couple verses tend to be ones that you read them and you go, wait, what did I just read? Verse 22 says this. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You say, what in the world is going on there? Let's talk about the Holy Spirit thing first. You'll remember we've talked about the Holy Spirit at length in this Gospel of John. He is God. Our God exists in three parts, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. The Holy Spirit has always been around, active in the world, but he comes in a new way, like you read in the book of Acts, which happens after this. Jesus ascends into heaven, and then he sends the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit literally, this is something else we believe, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us as Christians. That's what we believe. But then you read this account in John 20, and you go, oh, Jesus looks like he's giving them the Holy Spirit here. I thought that happened later in Acts chapter 2. You say, what, what do I do with that? Well, there's a couple of explanations at least for this. Some people hold that what's happening in John 20, verse 22, is that Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit and he breathes on them just as sort of a, a symbol, a symbolic way of saying, yes, the Holy Spirit is coming, be ready. Okay, maybe that's true. The other theory that's tossed around a lot is this, that Jesus was allowing them to receive the Holy Spirit in this moment, but they were not yet filled with the Spirit. That was what happened in Acts chapter 2. And I personally, we could disagree on this, that's fine. I would personally tend more toward that. Remember we talked before, have you been hanging around that? I use the example of my Brita pitcher at home that sits empty in my cupboard down here. I have that Brita pitcher. It's in my possession, but it's not filled until I stick it under the sink. It's like that. You can have the Holy Spirit as a Christian, but not be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like one of those things there. And then it kind of seems like it gets even stranger in verse 23. Jesus says, if you forgive anyone of their sin, it's forgiven them. But if you don't forgive them their sin, it's withheld from them. You go, wait, now the disciples are forgiving people of their sin? No, they're not. Only God can forgive you of your sin. I can't say to you, your sins are forgiven. That's God's jurisdiction. God's alone. The context, there's a key word that's gonna help us understand that whole bit of text that we've just read. And it's in verse 21. It says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am. What does it say? sending you. Sending is the key word that unlocks that whole passage right there. What Jesus is saying is I'm giving you the Holy Spirit so that you can be sent out. So you can be sent in his power so that you can witness and testify and share the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit's strength. And when the gospel is shared... By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit convicts people's heart 
of their sin, of their need to be saved, their need to, to turn to Jesus. And when they do that, that's when they are forgiven. See the track there? So, and by the way, from there, once that person is saved and forgiven, they're sent out as well to, to perpetuate this and to carry it on even further. This whole thing is about sending. So, let's bring this right in. Oftentimes in our lives, at least in my life, sometimes we live like we're at the center, don't we? Yeah, not you, someone else. We live like the world revolves around us. It's all about me, my pursuits, my interests, my goals, my opinion, my wishes. And we wonder why we're feeling so unfulfilled. I'll tell you something. I love you. Life is not about you. Get over yourself. It's not about you. Life is about Jesus, others, and you. So if you're camping out only looking to your own stuff, no wonder your life seems hollow. It's not supposed to be that way. Guess what? If you're a Christian today, Jesus is sending you. That doesn't necessarily mean he's sending you out overseas somewhere. He is sending you, at the very least, to the people all around you. There are people, I don't care who you are, there are people all around you, neighbors, friends, relatives, coworkers, people you play sports with, whatever. There are people all around you in your life, in your sphere of influence who need to know Jesus. And guess what? If you're a Christian, you've been given the Holy Spirit to go out in his strength and to proclaim and testify and witness about Jesus. And it's that Holy Spirit that convicts those people and convicts them of their need to be saved in Jesus. This is the sending. It literally is the greatest cause in the world. If you want to give your life to something, if you want to spend your life doing something with eternal significance, let alone it makes you feel good for a few minutes, this is like an eternal legacy and an eternal difference that you can make as a Christian. This is where it is. This is what you can spend your time to be doing. Yes, there's a lot of needs out in the world. There's a lot of things you could do. Feed the hungry, clothe those without clothing, all those things are great. But ultimately, the biggest need people have in this life is their need to be saved in Jesus Christ. That trumps all the others. There are a lot of really good causes in the world too. A lot of great organizations doing all kinds of great work. That's wonderful. We bless them. But there is no cause greater than the mission that Jesus has given to you to go and be sent and to go witness about him and to make disciples of his and to equip them and empower them and send them back out to do the same. That's the greatest cause in the world. That part of your life, that part of your soul, that gnawing in you where you want to make a difference and see lives change and have an impact and make your life count and leave a legacy, try this on for size and see where that gets you. Because this, this path, this impact that you can have as a Christian, th this difference that you can make by going out and sharing and making disciples and equipping them and all of this. 
Think of, the, think of the legacy that you could raise up. What if you shared the gospel with one person and they responded in faith and got saved in Jesus Christ? And you walked alongside them and helped them grow and learn and be built up as part of a church family. And that person went out and shared with someone else. Or maybe they did that with two people or three. And it just spreads out like this. And you know where that started? That started with you opening your mouth and being faithful. With you. I want to just say this today. Oftentimes as Christians, we, we just sell ourselves short. Oh, I could never do that. Never. I'm too scared. We already talked about fear, just saying. Yes, yeah, sometimes we say, that's not my calling. Some people have that gift, not me. Some people, sometimes it's, I'm too busy. Let's be real honest. Sometimes it's, I don't want to, and I don't care. Ouch. That is something to be repented of, if I ever heard it. Listen to me. This same Holy Spirit lives in you if you're a Christian. It's not about your strength. It's not about your clever words. It's not about your concise, crisp gospel presentation. It's about being faithful and letting the Holy Spirit work through you. So none of this, I gotta self-select out because I have nothing to offer. You absolutely have something to offer. His name is Jesus, guys. Come on now. It's time for the church to rise up and to sink our teeth into this. You think of how the gates of hell would tremble if even the people in this room right in here would go out and witness about Jesus and raise people up in the faith in Jesus Christ. Satan would tremble to see that. You wanna talk about making a difference in your life? Start by sharing Jesus with others. Start by coming alongside other people and helping them grow in their faith. I've seen some of you guys do this in our church and I've seen how it's changed you, by the way. I've seen it with my own eyes. You know what the coolest thing about all this is? Yes, I'm talking about it'll make you feel really fulfilled and it's great. Ultimately, the best thing is it's not even about you. Jesus gets all the credit and all the glory and that's the best thing for us because we just wanna see more of that and more of that and more of that. You guys get my point, you feel me? Okay, all right. Last one then and then we'll wrap up. Jesus is the purpose you're looking for. Somebody say purpose. You just need to know your life has a purpose. You are not here by accident. You are not here by mistake spinning on this rock that's going around the sun. There is a reason that you are here, and I said it already. You were made to be close to God, to worship God, to be near him and to walk with him and in all of your ways to acknowledge him. That, that is like an umbrella that covers all of your life, everything that you do. That is your purpose in life. Look at this, verse 30, verse 31 says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. So right there, if you're not a Christian, all of this stuff that we've talked about, the goal of this is for you to believe. Believe that Jesus is Lord. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he rose for you. Believe that he has a life for you. And all you need to do is respond in faith to what he's done for you. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And look at this. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. We're talking about true life, real life. Maybe you're sitting in here today and you feel like, yeah, I'm just existing, but I'm not really living. Get close to Jesus and that's gonna change pretty quick. Doesn't mean your life will be perfect and pain-free. 
doesn't mean that at all, but you will know a peace and a joy and a hope and a purpose that you've never experienced before. If you're not a Christian, it's found only in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, this is an encouragement for you to keep going, keep fighting, keep pursuing, keep pushing. Jesus is worth it. Draw near to him because he is the reason for your whole life. He is that important. This is the Easter story. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose in victory so he could secure victory for you so that you could believe in him, so that you could have life in his name. He has a life for you today, for you. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter if up till this point you've paid no attention to God at all. He has a life for you. He is the treasure you're looking for, the peace you're looking for, the proof you're looking for, the cause you're looking to sink your teeth into, and he's the purpose you're looking for in this life. And the life that he has for you is only possible because he died and he rose.